welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to P. Brian Skerritt, who's the former chair of Heritage Guelph, but he's now leading a new project. The effort to turn the Ontario reformatory lands in the east end of Guelph into a national urban park. Since the jail closed in 2000, the Ontario Reformatory and the 108 hectares that surround it have been the source of much conversation, optimism, and at times some fantasy. We got the Guelph Innovation District's secondary plan to guide the future development of the site. We've got the Heritage Conservation District study underway now to protect key heritage attributes on the property. And now we've got a project to turn the area into a national park. There are a lot of demands for this site, but they're not all conflicting demands. So is creating a national park the ultimate endgame for the OR lands that we've been looking for? That's the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. So first, what is a national urban park? It's an initiative started by the federal government in 2021, pledging to invest $130 million to create a network of urban parks across Canada with local partners in order to expand access to nature in urban settings where nearly three-quarters of all Canadians live. To become a national urban park, any proposed site has to meet three criteria. It has to conserve nature, connect people with nature, and advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. The OR lands check all three of those boxes. Heck, people are essentially already using it as a park, although It's technically not. Go down to York Road on a nice sunny day and you are going to see a lineup of cars parked along that road as people are enjoying the lands, perhaps as intended, like it's a park. Now, you may think that the OR lands are already well protected by various heritage designations, but those bylaws don't come into effect until the lands are sold by the government of Ontario. And until then, they can do whatever they like. This is important when it comes to understanding the aspects of the OR lands that are still under threat right now. Things like the Wood Trestle Bridge, the old power plant, the stone wall that collapsed in August, and an old accessory building that's key to the site's indigenous identity. That building, which was home to a program that helped indigenous inmates work through their trauma and led many of them to overcome a life of substance addiction and crime, was a model for the Canadian penal system at the time, And the proof is there in murals on the wall in the basement of a building that is currently outside the heritage protections for the rest of the site. The danger of losing that important indigenous history is one of the reasons that Skerritt wants to make the OR lands a national urban park, and it's one of the areas that we're going to cover on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. We will talk about the parameters of a national urban park on the OR lands, why the OR lands are the best candidate for a national urban park in Guelph, and what exactly a national park might look like. We will also talk about uncovering the indigenous connections on the site, the difficulties in accessing that history, and the complex negotiations between all levels of government that will be required to make a national park happen. And finally, we will discuss concerns about losing certain assets on the land, what the next phases in the project might look like, and what Scarrett would ideally like to see in terms of protecting the property if government were no barrier. So I caught up with P. Brian Scarrett earlier this week via Zoom. Okay, Brian Scarrett, thank you so much for joining me today. 
My pleasure. Uh, first, in your own words, um, what is an urban national park? Uh, by your understanding of of what it is that the federal government is is trying to get after here? Uh, well, it's it's pretty clear on the the Parks Canada website. It has to be, you know, it's obviously a national park because it's run by the federal government and Parks Canada. It has to be a natural space. Uh, you have to connect people to nature and you have to advance Indigenous reconciliation. Those are the three requirements that Parks Canada has laid out to, to even begin a conversation around an urban national park. And I think to a certain extent, it, it it's, stands to reason. It's a, it is a park, uh, but it's not a your typical national park. It's not or a provincial park. It's not Algonquin. It's not, you know, Lewisburg. Uh, it's a park within the confines of a, or, or adjacent to an urban area, right. which I think the federal government became very aware of during COVID in particular, that these green spaces are more critical than, than we ever, even, we always knew they were important, but even more so than, than we ever understood before. Mm-hmm. Before tackling sort of what makes the OR lands um, a, 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 a candidate for an urban national park, I just want to float this by you. Um, is it that, I mean, obviously you care a great deal about heritage, so there's there's an appeal there. Is it that the OR lands are just a really good candidate for an urban national park, or is it also perhaps that, generally speaking, when you look at the, the entirety of Guelph, that maybe the OR lands is maybe the best. If we were, if if we had to choose a site to go for an urban national park in Guelph, the OR lands would be it. Well, absolutely, that's that's true. Um, you know, the, the OR lands are really the only site in in, in Guelph that qualify that meet all three criteria but it's it's not just because it's a site within guelph uh you know this is obviously uh parks canada was directed to open up at least 15 urban national parks so this is a national program uh when we first started looking at this we had to decide does guelph make the grade on a provincial scale or a national scale and and that's where things got intriguing. And in fact, yeah, it does. Um, you know, from, from meeting all three of those criteria, um, it's not easy. Uh, and and having, you know, a, a starting place with it that's 108 hectares. And that's literally, and one thing I want to mention, that's just literally the starting place. If that park could ever get established, it becomes a hub that can connect, you know, Eden Mills, Niska Road, the Grand River, uh, Guelph Lake. These, the, the river systems become natural you know, tributaries to, to connect to this park, and they in turn can become their own park systems that, that are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a bit about the, I, I guess, what are the parameters you're looking at in, in terms of when people are sort of visualizing DOR lands. Um, are we talking about taking the whole thing and turning it into a park? I mean, because obviously there are like, we'll get into the various plans in a sec, but you know, each plan sort of has their own sort of in- individual, like these are the borders we're dealing with for this plan. These are the borders we're dealing with for this plan. Is it just like, we're going to, I guess for lack of a better term, tape the whole thing off and saying, this is a national park. 
Uh, well, it's it's tricky. I mean, who's which boundaries are you considering? And that was something that we had to consider too. Um, you know, would we consider um, private properties that you know that were owned by Fusion that right. may not be developable? Uh, would we consider the private property that the Matthews Farmhouse is sitting on? Um, would we consider land that's owned by the city of Guelph? Not just so when we talk about the OR lands. I'm not even sure that's that seems to be a moving definition. Mm. And that's why the easiest uh, and really most reasonable thing for us to gravitate to were the boundaries of the Heritage Conservation District. Okay. They were established through a study. They were uh, with um, WSP. Um, they were approved. Those boundaries were approved by city council. Uh, they included cultural history, natural history, privately held land, provincially held land, and municipally owned land. Um, so that seems to be the best starting point. And just so I'm clear, too, that, that we're talking about the Matthews Farmhouse property, that's not included in the HCD boundaries. Yes, it is. It is included? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Although it just it is a, it's subject to a Part 4 heritage designation right. as well as being included in the, in the Heritage uh, Conservation District. Uh, but that is being appealed by the property owner. I was going to say that it's being fought right now. Let me ask you this: How much of, actually, I'm only, I won't get there yet. What I'm going to get to first is, in terms of, you know, I, I was considering this this morning. We go from the 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 jail is closed, and then we get the secondary plan, the Guelph Innovation District secondary plan, and then we get the Heritage Conservation District plan. That's being worked on right now and now we have this idea of of the national urban park area i guess do these things work together still in in your estimation like if, if this is a project that ends up going forward or are we sort of like not to sound too cynical but are we just like shooting for like the best possible plan to preserve everything we can by throwing every kind of different plan at it well i i I think there were different motivations for different proposals at different times, mm. right? The, the, the facility has been closed for over 20 years. Mm. So what was, what was envisioned in 2005 wasn't necessarily the same thing envisioned in 2009 when they wrote the first conservation plan, um, which may not have been the same as in 2018. So, so those targets, you know, at one point, the province had identified four areas that they were intending to sell. Then they decided and broadcast that they were only going to sell the whole thing all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, then they changed gears and seemingly changed gears anyway and, and hived off the developable land that they sold to Fusion Homes. And so it's the area that is now east of the river that is still the surplus property. So, you know, what was the Gulf Innovation District? Um, doesn't really exist anymore. People still refer to mm -hmm. it, but I'm, you know, it, it's it's moved and 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 even the provincial changes to our um, official plan right. had, had an impact on what was originally envisioned. So I think that, that we can eliminate conversations about comparing this to the to the GID secondary plan. When we compare it to the conservation district, you know, they're certainly not mutually exclusive. But the conservation district 
other than identifying boundaries and identifying heritage assets and cultural assets within those boundaries, it doesn't do anything to protect natural heritage mm. uh, or, or specifically nature. Um, it doesn't do anything to preserve public access mm. at all. I mean, somebody could, a private enterprise could buy that facility and literally fence it off and and preclude any public access to that to that land. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the national park idea. I mean, obviously, it came out when the federal government made their proposals. But but um, the appeal to those of us who have been involved in this uh, was that we could accomplish a whole bunch of things all at once that I don't think any of the other specific plans can do, which is preserving access, conserving nature, you know, protecting biodiversity, um, speaking to the cultural heritage assets. And <laughs> interesting, what I initially thought was our weakest area, which was speaking to um, advancing reconciliation, I think has in some ways become our strongest. Um, so, so we're accomplishing a whole bunch of goals that that none of the other plans do at the same time. That's the piece of it I wanted to, I, I was kind of trying to get to um, or trying to build us towards because, and you've talked about this in, in various interviews that you've done, um, that the, the reconciliation piece of this and recogni- recognizing the unique indigenous characteristics of the property, whether that's the murals in the, um, in the, in the basement of the one building or the, uh, the the native sons who who are at the, the the group that was at the reformatory too, these are particular pieces that because they're outside of what the HCD is studying that are at particular risk. That's fair to say, right? Oh, I would say so for sure. Um, it, it's not just that you know they're at. I, I'm not as worried, in fact, about the murals. Um, they're they're significant you know mm-hmm. and i i don't don't get me wrong I, I would absolutely want to see those preserved but it's the murals only exist because the native sons existed right the native so the native son story is in and of itself uh, a story that has not yet emerged very broadly into the public eye but the native sons only existed because of the 60 scoop and because right. of because of residential schools, uh, because of you know historical and systemic racism, so that's how we get to use this site as a launching point into conversations about what has gone on in the past and how we address it in the future. I was I was doing some research back in March and looking at you know I think it was about 1990 and Indigenous. Prisoners in the in the Wolf Correctional Center were about eleven percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, where you know in the Canadian population at the time they were about three percent, so they were clearly misrepresented, overrepresented. And then almost by accident, I came upon a contemporary statistic, and I think the contemporary statistic now is that in the federal jail system in Canada, Indigenous prisoners account for thirty three percent. Mm. of of the the prison population so i, I was what well, really struck we're going the wrong way right and how is that even possible you know in our you know aware woke you know liberal whatever you want to call it 
And again, it's like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> These are conversations we have to have. I was not aware of that. How many people are aware of that? Um, and, you know, these are things that you know, we should be talking about all year round, not just on Truth and Reconciliation Day. Right. So so this park gives a vehicle for those conversations. Before we get too far ahead, because you and I have had this conversation uh, offline before, <laughs> but for people who may not know, what are what are some of the like the the features pertaining to indigenous reconciliation that we're talking about um in, in that would be that would be highlighted if if the orleans were to become a national park what would that what would what would all that include oh boy that's a <laughs> i mean it's so broad and and here's the the interesting i mean i have things i would like to bring to the table and mm -hmm. the things that i've learned in the past that, i mean there's there's stories that are still emerging there's the there's a whole story just about a sweat lodge on the site mm -hmm. um that you know had been sort of widely touted hey you know how progressive guelph was um we had a sweat lodge at this facility uh i only learned literally two weeks ago that we weren't that progressive uh in <laughs> fact the the sweat lodge was denied the native prisoners at the time uh by the by the jail administration and it was only when it became an, an obvious human rights issue Mm -hmm. that they that that the indigenous prisoners had to fight for that the administration capitulated um so there are there are part stories out there so some of those part stories need to be investigated more thoroughly and, and discovered um you know the whole history of the native sons the the artwork the, that they produced wasn't just in the um, in the buildings, uh, they built, I, I learned this from a, a former native liaison worker I interviewed three weeks ago. Um, they built a, a traditional drum uh, in, mm. in the prison. There's a photograph of it that I've got a copy of and, and nobody knows where it went. Mm. There was a, there was a mural painted right onto the surface of one of the tables in the native son's room that has also seemingly vanished. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of these, these small cultural touch points but again they become part of that that bigger conversation and honestly i mean it, it seems trite to say i don't know what i don't know right but some of these aren't my story to tell right these are these are these are stories that that i'm happy to to repeat but only when other voices indigenous voices have said yes please help us tell these stories right um you know the there, there's a quote from somebody i've met recently who said that the reformatory and it was a place of pain and suffering for indigenous people and you know we have to remember that that this this isn't about saying wow what a wonderful place this was this is about saying wow this was a a serious place serious things happened here um I, i'm going to use the word reconcile not reconciliation but right we settlers have to reconcile ourselves to that history right there, there's a story here about i guess that overrepresentation of indigenous people in our prison system there's that colonial piece of it but there's also, and I hate to make the comparison, but there's also this very kind of Shawshank story about prisoners who are overcoming their confinement and their struggles and their trauma in this prison and being able to 
use their culture in ways to overcome that colonialism they were experiencing. Oh, absolutely. And I think there, you know, uh, CBC ran a story on this last week and, and um, Kate Bickert did an interview with Freddie Taylor um, and Richard Vivian also interviewed Freddie Taylor for Guelph today. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what, what Freddie said about using the art as a, as a method of healing uh, I came across some notes at the Art Gallery of Guelph um, where Richard Bedwash, who is now attributed to at least one or two of those paintings in, in the reformatory, um, in one of their documents, it literally says that he was painting in the prison uh, as, as a means of healing and because he was being denied his native spirituality otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It's fascinating when we when we look at that. It wasn't just a creative outlet; it was a spiritual outlet. It was it was a healing outlet. Yeah, and, and I mean the fact that there are people like you who are, you know, doing the investigative work, you know, thirty years after twenty thirty years after a lot of this happened, um, speaks to I guess how little we sort of valued that struggle and perhaps how far we've come in recognizing that there is value in the murals and in the tables and in the sweat lodges. And uh, I, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, when, one of the things that uh, when I was with heritage Guelph, one of the concerns I had uh, particularly about the murals, which had been, we, we didn't know that they existed. We mm. I'd heard about them. They were referred to in a report and, and one of my concerns, they were referred to in two reports, one in 2009, one in 2018. But even since 2018, the lens has changed. You know, we are becoming much more aware of, of our shortcomings and what we need to do to actually to advance reconciliation. And, and, and even reconciliation is a loaded word. I, I've met men, um, Indigenous men, Freddie Taylor was not a fan of the word reconciliation. Mm. But when I shifted the conversation to healing, he was all in. Right. So it, it's, you know, it's nuanced with, with every individual. Yeah, you can't reconcile some of that systemic abuse that was done, but you can help somebody heal from it. No, exactly. And, and, and you know, conceptually, I don't think, you know, we are not going to see, quote unquote, reconciliation in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's it's just the beginning is the beginning of a of a journey that will take as long to undo as it took to do yeah i i mean i i try to reconcile that in in my own mind talking about reconciliation 500 years mm-hmm. of abuse <laughs> three yeah. three years of solid effort to try and undo it exactly <laughs> um the thing and and this is kind of a broader issue I've noted in watching the Heritage Guelph meetings. And this is not necessarily a slight against Heritage staff, but it does feel like there is more of a focus on what's outside, like the outside, the exterior aspects of the building than what's inside. And I'm again, I'm not blaming anyone in particular for this, but and maybe it's a, 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 frig, a, a figment of sort of like being overworked and trying to protect all this heritage on such a, a short timeline, but we're not really going inside these buildings very often and trying to find, I guess, the hidden heritage. Um, and that's sort of being, that's sort of become like a personal mission to a lot of people who who care about those things. That's not so much a, a thing that is happening at our, at our government level with the heritage planning staff, because they're trying to 
find just enough to get the darn things designated, it seems. Well, it, it depends on now. Are you talking about generally or are you talking about the, um, the, generally? Uh, yeah, gen generally. Gen generally speaking, um, interior designations are difficult. Right. Um, they're not in the public eye. Uh, if if you designated something in somebody's house, how do you enforce it? How do you right. know that it's still there? Right. right. You, you really right. you really don't. Um, so, but but public places, obviously, in publicly held places, um, I think there are interior elements of the the old post office downtown mm. that have got uh, that are designated. So so it's not that we don't do it. Right. The trick. The tricky part with this building in the lower assembly hall um, is that I Heritage Guelph never had access to it right. when, when the designations were being done, when we were doing the part four designations. I'm not sure if city staff had access to it either. Mm. I think if they had, they they may have chosen to speak up and, and step up to to the to advocating for the, the designation. Um, in my opinion, it qualifies for designation under the Heritage Act. I think it, it actually ticks off three of the boxes that are required. Uh, and it's something that should be revisited. Hmm. Um, so yeah, was that, I don't, I, I can't say that that was the fault of Heritage staff yeah. or, or Heritage Guelph. Um, but certainly knowing what we know now, Right. Um, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to revisit it. Right. And it's, and I don't know what that process is. And maybe you can shed some light, but um, these things aren't sort of static. They aren't in stone. It, it, it isn't just like we recognize these heritage features for all time. And we don't, if we discover something new, we can't, you know, add a, add a post-it or something. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. I, I think that that's, that's, that's very valid. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's not, Terribly often we go back, in my experience, that we've gone back to add things to designations, but I know we've often op opened up designated buildings to to make changes, mm. to to say, you know, somebody wants to put on an addition and, and remove a designated window. Well, mm. you know, the greater good is is served by permitting a, a, a that addition. The window wasn't that important, so the designation is changed. Right. Uh, there's no reason that shouldn't work in reverse, <laughs> where we can say, right. yeah, hey, wait a minute, that window that we missed the first time is really important after all. Let's go back and make sure we, we get that covered. Right. Before I move, move on to sort of getting back to happier talk, I, I want to address this thing, and it, it, it pertains to uh, pertains to a lot of things. You know, we have the, the old power station, Infrastructure Ontario is looking at raising that. We have the, the Trussell Bridge which is actually pretty solid because I've actually stood on it and it, it's, yeah. it's pretty solid to me. So I'm not sure what the yeah. concern is, I guess, other than access um, the, the, the stone wall. And I kind of tried to get Kathy Downer to, to, to talk about this, the whole thing about the natural erosion, the erosion. which sounds like which... such a, a, a I, I don't know. It sounds like a distinction without a difference. Cause I thought er erosion was all natural anyway, but I know that there are a lot of people, and feel free to distance yourself from, from them if you want, but I know a lot of people are like, hear the words natural erosion and go, that's that's BS. You know, somebody yeah. knocked that down, and it might have been for nefarious reasons. And there, there is kind of this thing 
I, I've noticed in the community when something like that happens, like some an old building burns down, it's like, oh yeah, it accidentally wink, 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 wink. Gosh, you know, I'm I'm just what what I'm struggling with is the trust factor, right? When infrastructure in Ontario says, oh, it's natural erosion, but the day before it was a stone wall that you could probably push against and it would be fine. And I'm, you know, for advocates like you, I guess, how do you, how do you navigate this minefield? You know, you want, obviously we want to trust our institutions that when they say it's natural erosion, that we can take that advice to the bank. But on the other hand, we know that, you know, stuff happens to buildings and there's such a thing as demolition by neglect i guess how do we navigate those competing ideas well so so to speak specifically to that issue with the walls um it, you know it's it's been the amount of some heated debate even amongst my, my friends and colleagues within the, the urban park group my position now and has always been let's fix the problem and not the blame right Right? It does it matter? Does it matter if it was erosion or vandalism? Right. We have a heritage structure that is owned by the province that needs to be repaired regardless of what the cause was. So let's not focus on on fixing blame. Let's focus on fixing walls. Like that that's so that's speaking to that element. The other elements that are at risk, um, <laughs> they are not natural. They right. are they are anything but the, the the trestle bridge has been recommended for demolition not only by the province but it was identified as uh one of the outcomes let's say uh for the stormwater management master plan mm -hmm. uh the stormwater management master plan also called for putting a stormwater pond within the heritage conservation district boundaries uh where the old jc's park used to be um to my knowledge, that has not gone to Heritage Guelph. The mm. chair of Heritage Guelph hasn't had an opportunity to, to chime in on that. Um, as you said, the the, the power station, uh, the chimney was identified for demolition. Um, and, you know, as far as I know, nobody's even really done very good research on the chimney. Mm. Um, they, you know, when you think about it, chimneys are actually pretty cool. That That round chimneys require round bricks. Right. They're specifically made, and they're they're specifically made to a specific size because not only is it a curved brick, but it has to be curved to meet the right diameter. Right. So you know, a curved brick for a small chimney is not the same curved brick for a big chimney. So there there was a company in Canada that that made those bricks, uh, and they did some of the most incredible structures in North America. Um, there's a whole history that that didn't get didn't get uncovered. Uh, or presented to Heritage Guelph when the province came by and said, yeah, well, we think we need to knock the chimney down. Um, you know, what else is at risk? I mean, there's there's obviously Clyde Creek, you know, that mm. that ship has sailed, but, but uh, you know, the province banned fishing in the ponds because they said, well, there might be Blandings turtles and other species that are at risk if you go fishing there. <laughs> I think they're going to really be at risk if we take out the creek bed and let it go dry and make York Road four lanes. Um, so none of these other threats are are natural. Um, the jail fire mural in the basement of the chapel that mm. was uncovered again this past March. The province doesn't even acknowledge that it exists. Mm. You know, um, 
the uh, I think uh, the Guelph Mercury Tribune did a story on that back in March, and Jessica Lovell called Infrastructure Ontario, and the the quote from from IO was, uh, "There is no documented, there are no documented murals in the basement of the chapel." Right, and it just makes me laugh. <laughs> if if it's not documented, it doesn't exist. I mean, how does that work? <laughs> um, so so obviously, and that's a, that's not insignificant. That was a sixteen foot wide mural uh, commemorating a fire where five prison inmates died. Mm. Um, you know, it's a different it's a different conversation, but it's there's a certain parallel to the the murals in the lower assembly hall. Right, that have been identified. They were identified, but we're letting them go anyway. Right, and and the, the circular logic that that Infrastructure Ontario has has applied to this, they've said, well, we can't take it out because it would damage the paintings, but they're in an unprotected building that could be demolished anyway, or you know, demolished by time. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, natural erosion, they call it. <laughs> 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 but I mean, there there is that you know, and and to to your point too. I think Councillor Karam made that point at council a couple of weeks ago that it should be treated the, the wall going back to the wall. It should be a property standards issue. It's not a matter of of what happened or, or why it happened. It's it's a wall that's fallen down. It should be fixed. But you know, going back to this situation of you know. We we sort of are we're sort of uncovering these things by accident, or people are coming forward with knowledge, and then you go to the official sources, and then they say, "Well, there's a nothing we can do. B, it's not there. C, uh, we know it's there, but we're not going to do anything about it." You know, we have a pat, and this kind of goes back to the national park idea. We have a passionate community here, and there's a like a laundry list of groups in your press release who are attaching themselves to this idea. There's a passionate group. Who who yep. want this to go forward? They want better protection. So I want to assure that like everything that has a heritage value can be protected. But our, you know, city hall has their end goals. IO has their goals. Then you have to go to a federal government and convince them. I guess I don't know what the question well, is. That, <laughs> that that well, I'll just comment that that is part of a fractured landscape. Yeah, and 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 the groups that are supporting our project are no different. We all have a bias that we we bring to the table. Yeah. My bias happens to be historical and, and cultural um, background. Um, I'm learning on the fly uh, about the indigenous component, and it's been an eye opener. I'm learning on the fly about the biodiversity, the species at risk. The there's a an area of natural and scientific interest at the old quarry site. Mm. Um, there's, there's a lot there that I'm learning about, but we have other partners that, that, that bring different things to the table. So the, the Guelph Hiking Trail Club, for instance, they're an avid supporter and, you know, they're very interested in the trestle bridge and connectivity and, you know, creating those pathways, literal pathways, Mm. um, that, that are part of the mandate to connect people to nature. Right. Um, Nature Guelph is a signatory, one of the supporters. You know, their mandate is about nature. It's not about the history. It's not about the jail. It's not about the buildings, um, which is, you know, one of the great strengths we have with a coalition, with a group that's that's supporting it, 
because we all bring these wonderful things to the table. And collectively, it's the only way this, this project is going to get off the ground, is it's collectively and it's grassroots. It's, mm. it's driving the message on social media, on Twitter, because as you said, Wildfights care about this space, but they all care about it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and that's okay because we have a lot to learn from each other. Uh, and a national park protects all of the reasons mm -hmm. at the same time. Are you expecting or have you gotten any kind of response formal or otherwise from city of Guelph, whether we're talking about staff or council. I mean, I know a couple of councillors have boosted the, you, you know, the signal on social media, but I mean, do you expect any, any like sort of formal support or is this, is this kind of happening regardless of what the city is thinking? At this point, it's, we, we all, we've had a couple of informal conversations with the city. We have made them aware of our interests. Um, we submitted an application or a proposal to Parks Canada back in April, I think, and um, the city was was sent copies of that correspondence. Um, so, you know, effort was made to keep both the city and the politicians abreast. Um, at this point, you know, we're, this is going to be a long campaign. I don't, I, I, I'd be very happy if it was a short campaign and Parks Canada turned around and surprised me. <laughs> but you know, at this point, we are we are working on our federal petition. Uh, I'll put in a plug: if you're going to Google it, Google you Google petition e hyphen four five nine three, and that will take you to the petition that people can sign. Um, so our focus for the next little while is, is driving signatories to that petition. We need to get as many people on board to demonstrate. Um, grassroots support and you know when we demonstrate that grassroots support it makes it a lot easier for for politicians of all stripes with local provincial federal to get behind right so so we're starting with that petition and then moving on so where our appeal to city hall begins and when i'm not sure it's definitely going to be in the cards so you know what is the process then um you, you I wish I knew. About, you talked about okay. Well, you've. I just mean you. You kind of stuck the your flag in the ground. There's a petition, um, and I'm going to include a, a direct link in the show notes for the episode so people can find it. But I, I mean, in terms of you know what happens now, in terms of I mean, and what is it like that you and the others who are kind of organizing this? What do you think you have to do in order to sort of seal the deal and and to make the case? You know, or do you have? Any idea aside from like highlighting the this meets the three criteria that you need? Obviously, there are a lot of projects like this, so you clearly have to sort of do something to try and stand out. Absolutely, I mean, there's there, there are going to be a lot of uh, a lot of other municipalities and regions that are also you know, advancing their own proposals, and you know they have as good a claim as, as we do. Uh, um, you know, we have to you know a drive the support, but B, drive the reasoning. We have to make the process, not the process, we have to make the end result, the end project, the end park, so fantastic. Uh, meeting all three criteria, telling a story about reconciliation, telling a story about uh, biodiversity and climate change and protecting public access. Oh, and just for bonus points, because protecting 
cultural heritage assets isn't part of what Perks Canada cares about. Right. That's not that's not a, a consideration. But we bring that to the table in spades. So we just have to keep pounding the drum and making this such a wonderful project that 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 the politicians, the, the environment minister, um, Parks Canada sit up and can't help but take notice. And you know, I've said it before that if we're not one of the fifteen parks chosen because we've established such a great uh, CV, uh, we have to be so wonderful that they can't do anything but make a sixteenth spot for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're hoping. Um, yeah, we're gonna do it. The Cargill plant's kind of a pain in the ass, though, right? Like where it's situated, like that fence line is like right up against like the river in some places. <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. I mean, we can't no, change we can't, that, but it's... I can't change it. Yeah, you know, we have to, you know, embrace what's there. Um, I'd love to see Cargill embrace the the concept of a, of being surrounded by a national park. <laughs> <laughs> they might you never know it might but uh i just i just wanted to put that on the record that uh some of those trails um don't forget are... the cargill plant was originally the abattoir <gasps> at the golf correctional center that's right so in and of itself it's a heritage element yeah i wonder if they might get behind that um maybe to wrap up uh i'm going to i'm going to give you magical powers like yeah. assuming like like city stuff isn't an issue io isn't an issue i mean maybe this this is conceivable if you know the national park is approved but you know just for the sake of i don't know just you know for, for your own to let your own imagination run free in in your ideal world in the ideal world of brian scarrett you know what does the lr lands look like i mean what what do you do with it oh that's such a fascinating question um you know, one of what I see as my most desirable outcome is to have the park project move forward and then extricate myself from the conversation, mm. which sounds really odd. But one of the really interesting facets that, that Parks Canada has developed is the governance structure mm. of, of the, final pro, um, the final product. Each mm. park has a each park will have its own governance structure and none of it is top down from the federal government um each identified um group that is involved in the park project whether it's uh, an indigenous group a municipality uh conceivable a, a private landowner the uh, the province uh everybody who's got a seat at the table that becomes part of the governance board actually effectively also has a veto. And if they think that the park project is straying from its original mandate, they get to challenge uh, the, the park project. There's also a time frame. I think it's every five years that Parks Canada automatically reviews each of these parks to ensure that they are meeting and maintaining and, and meet, um, accomplishing the goals that they've set out to. Mm -hmm. um, so somewhere down the line, there there will be a role for um, citizen engagement at, at the government governing level. Uh, I hope, you know, I'd, I'd, what I would love to see in a, in a very interesting fashion would be to see federal provincial partnership on this land. You know, it's it's provincially owned. Um, 
if this project were to move forward, there could be a case where, you know, we, we, we know this is surplus land. In theory, the province could put this on the market and sell it tomorrow. Mm. And in theory, the federal government could buy it. I would love to see a situation where the province said, hey, you know what? We've got the surplus land. We've got an area of natural scientific interest. We've got cultural heritage. We've got, you know, history. We've got reconciliation. Uh, there's this part, this program from the federal government. Why don't we all team up and work together? Hey, by the way, this is also owned partly by the municipality. They can step up and become part of this conversation and this, this governing body as well. Uh, I don't think there would be anything like that in Canada. Hmm. I mean, it's it, it's an intriguing possibility, um, and and you know that's you know when you were you know for people who not know we we've had conversations offline, and you've been talking. I know you this has been sort of like in you, you, the works for you for a while, and it's always been sort of like an intriguing possibility. I know that whatever happens with this property is probably not going to please everybody, but I think the best shot of probably pleasing everybody with what happens with this property is probably if it ends up at urban national park. <laughs> that's that, that's my guess. Yeah. You know, that, that we can, we can accomplish more. The other thing is that, you know, there are going to be competing interests. Somebody at, on council made a motion some time ago that uh, all surplus property within the city be dedicated to uh, given to the city for affordable housing or given over to affordable housing. Can't remember quite how the, the motion was worded. The reality is, if this becomes land used for anything other than a national park, or other than a park, let's say, mm. uh, we will never find 100 plus hectares of natural land again, that that accomplishes all those things that, that are set out in the in the in the guidelines from Parks Canada. We will always be able to find room for other things, we will make room for other things right you know if we build you know as i drew the parallel recently with somebody if we were to suddenly build houses on exhibition park we'll never get exhibition park back again yeah. right we're just building houses if we develop this for anything other than parkland public access heritage reconciliation those opportunities are, are forever gone and the other thing I will say is that the, the property as it stands right now is effectively being used as a national park. It's just it's just not being it's not set up as such, which is why you see the long line of cars parked along York Road instead of having like yes. proper parking and access and yeah, transit routes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So I mean, go where the people are, right? Which is you know they're they're already using it as sort of you know you're outlining here, but I'll leave it there. Um, I, I I heartily improve this message, but uh, we will we'll thank see you. what happens. We'll see what happens. Brian Scarrett, thank yes. you for your time today. Thanks, Adam. And once again, that was P. Brian Scarrett. You can learn more about the creation of national urban parks at Parks Canada's website at parks.canada.ca slash P-U-N dash N-U-P. You can add your name to a petition in support of the OR Lands Urban National Park at the petitions page of the Our Commons website. The Heritage Conservation District study is currently in its second and final phase, and you can learn more about that on the City of Guelph's website at guelph.ca, but you can find the direct links to 
everything in the show notes for this episode. And that's it for this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. We hope you like it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can also do that by getting all the pertinent information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we'll have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. Oh, my God.